Hey, everybody, welcome to episode five of the Waking Up to Narcissism podcast. I'm your host, Tony Overbay, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and podcast host of The Virtual Couch, and I'm in private practice somewhere in Northern California. But I just want to jump in, and I have so much content to cover today. I want to talk about a trauma bond, what a trauma bond is, and we're going to get to that, but I have some things I want to do up front. First, if anybody happens to be in the Salt Lake area and are interested, I'm going to be speaking at a Leading Saints Live event from 1 to 5 p.m. on October the 16th, and you can go to uh, leadingsaints.org slash Tony in Utah, or you can go find my Facebook page, Tony Overbay, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, or the Virtual Couch account on Instagram, and I will post more about that, but that's that's going to be exciting. It's interesting because I have four hours to cover so much material, and the host, Kurt Frankham, has asked me to cover narcissism in ecclesiastical in the ecclesiastical setting, so maybe in religious leadership. So that's going to be one of the many things I'm going to try to get to. I, I told him I'm going to try to solve all the world's problems there, because I've got four hours to do so. So that's October 16th. And I also wanted to just touch on a couple of the emails. Oh, and make mention of contact me. There are a lot of emails. I'm almost overwhelmed with the amount of emails, but I I don't stop. I'm looking for more examples of gaslighting. You can ask questions. I want to get to question and answer episodes. And I know I keep saying this, that coming up down the road, but I have a couple of authors, one of a new book on narcissism that's going to come on. But the real thing I'm looking forward to, I'm still trying to figure out how to do this behind the scenes, is bringing on people that are currently in relationships with, have been through relationships with people that are struggling with narcissistic personality disorder or narcissistic tendencies. And there's a lot more there. If people are involved in divorces, if people are, a lot of people get frustrated and angry and they want, they do want their story to be told. But then when they step back, they think, okay, with, if my kids hear this down the road or my community. So we're just working out some of the, the finer points, but we're going to get real people, real examples. And I think that's going to be pretty fascinating. But for now, I have so many emails of examples of gaslighting, but not just people saying, hey, here's some gaslighting, but most people are sending emails and they're asking questions like this. And this is the latest one that I received. So it was actually last night. And so I didn't actually get a chance to respond and say, are you cool if I share some of this? So I'll change up some of the things. But I I think this is one of the most interesting parts or points of the type of email I receive. At the end, she says, I'm one of, quote, those people, and I'm not sure if I have rose-colored goggles on or if I'm the problem. I feel like for the most part, I'm a very secure and hardworking person. I've dealt with this for, well, to say, I'll say over 20 years, and it's actually improved somewhat. I think that's kind of a key. We'll get to that today on this episode about trauma bonding. And she said, I always try to replace situations of what I think a normal marriage would look like or how a husband would and should react in similar situations. And she said, I feel I'm so far down this road that I have no idea. And she says just some key things here. She said, also, my parents divorced when I was young, and my mom didn't remarry until I moved out. So it's hard for me to go by example. And so I I just want you to know, person who emailed me, and we'll read a little bit more from this too, that you're asking all the right questions. And and one of the things I think is significant is when she said that she didn't know what that would look like, that she's so far down this road that she has no idea And that's a concept that I think is why I'm so drawn to this work in working with or helping people navigate those relationships with people that may have these personality disorders, because you don't know what you don't know. And 
a lot of the people that find themselves in these relationships, and I covered this on a previous episode, are the pathologically kind people. They're a lot of times highly sensitive people, people that have grown up and have maybe been in this type of a home as well. So they have already grown up trying to read the room and uh, feel the, the, the energy or the empathy in the room and, and knowing how to show up so that they can keep the peace or be the peacekeepers. So then they may find themselves in these relationships. This is part of that human magnet syndrome with some of these people that are very strong-willed, very domineering. There's a lot of possibly love bombing at first. The person shows up as the this amazing knight in shining armor that the this person wants to marry or wants to be a part of or in that relationship because they may have seen that modeled by their own parent, whether it's their mom or their dad, that just ultra confident person that they can feel like they are safe or secure. But then there are all these times where their parent most likely didn't take ownership of anything or maybe didn't model the my bad or I'm sorry But there was a lot of the ignoring culpability of situations or ignoring of taking responsibility and oftentimes pushing it off on kids or spouse or you guys, you guys are driving me crazy or you're making me feel like this is what I had to do. So oftentimes the children have grown up seeing a model of parents that don't take ownership or responsibility and that often do put off the, the responsibility of their actions onto those in their family, whether it's their spouse or their kids. So I appreciate that this reader, this writer said that she doesn't know if she really knows what a healthy relationship looks like. So when I'm trying to teach people about my four pillars of a connected conversation or to be heard is to be healed or any of these concepts, I realized over the years that a lot of times I, I met with a blank stare because it's as if I'm telling a just this fairy tale and then the people are waiting in my office for me to be done with my fairy tale story so then they can get back to trying to tell me that their spouse is the crazy one and wouldn't you agree and can you just tell them to knock it off and get back to doing the things that that they used to do so that then the controlling person in the room can feel better okay we're good again and just like this email I started with today not sure if I am if I have rose-colored goggles on or if I'm the problem And so you don't have rose-colored goggles on, or if you do, they're goggles of kindness and you're trying to do all you can to to help and to preserve a marriage, when in reality, the tool that we need to help with are those five things I talked about of some nice self-care, raising your emotional baseline, getting your PhD in gaslighting, disengaging from unproductive conversations, and uh, setting boundaries and recognizing that there isn't anything that you will say or do that will cause that aha moment or that epiphany. But the more that you put these other things in place and then set these boundaries and then can stay present when you're, I just want to say for right now, when your narcissist then reacts, and we talked about that, I think in episode two, when they start to say, oh my gosh, you won't let things go, or you're so angry, or they start pushing all the buttons to get you to react. And that's hard and that's scary. But as you stay present with that, then that is what will start to shift the dynamic. And the more uh, clarity that you can have, that's where we need to be if you are going to start to see some change in the relationship. I feel so bad. I'm 27 minutes in and I haven't talked about the trauma bond, but I am going to talk about the trauma bond. This is not going to be like that narcissistic apology where I just uh, draw this out for a few days or a few episodes. So I, I'm going to go right to an article and I'll send, I'll put a link to this in the show notes. It looks like it's from the UK, but it's the Broxtown Women's Project. Because I've done a few episodes on trauma bonding or one episode on the virtual couch. I've been interviewed about it a time or two. 
And I felt like this is a really good article. And so I'm going to do, I think, what the kids call reaction video these days because I'm going to do a lot of reading. So I'm going to take no credit for the reading of this, but then I'll comment on it along the way. So trauma bonding, why you can't stop loving the narcissist. They say trauma bonding makes you psychologically addicted to your abuser. This explains why trying to stop contact can feel like you're coming off of a drug. And, uh, and the article doesn't have a, I'm just, so I'm just going to say they, it doesn't have a specific author's name, but uh, they say that survivors and perpetrators of domestic abuse often form trauma bonds whereby they both become emotionally hooked into the relationship. This can make it extremely difficult for the survivor to unlock herself and escape from the abuse. Trauma bonding happens when an abuser provides the survivor with intermittent rewards and punishments. So in that scenario, a psychological conditioning develops so the survivor becomes snared into the relationship and they're just hopeful of the next reward or, and I think this is such a key point, or a reprieve of the suffering. So when I'm working with people and they will often say, no, 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 he's not that bad. There's good times that they find themselves craving those good times. So they, are, they become willing to deal with the bad times and they start to find any way that they can to try to get back to those good times. Basically, if you're looking at it from a, ter- a concept of like addiction, they're, they'll do anything to get that next fix, even lose their sense of self or buffer what he's saying from the kids or make sure the kids are, are being calm or whatever that looks like in order to get that man hope. Hopefully then he'll be nice. And there are so many times that I'm working with, with someone in this scenario. And again, I'll just go with the, if I'm working with a, a woman in this situation where she'll say, no, it was a good week. And I'll say, okay, why? Tell me why it was good. And I'm, I'm almost laughing of some of the people I've worked with. I know they're, they know where I'm going with next, but was it that it, it was nice or that you had these connected conversations or that this person really said, man, I don't know you. Tell me who you are, how, you know, we need to connect. Or is it that there was an absence of being mean? And so if that's the case, life is not about or relationships are not about an absence of being mean. The norm is being nice and then having some incredible connected moments. It's not um, hoping that there isn't a, a blow up and trying to manage that situation. So then, you no, know, it was a good week. Nobody freaked out. Uh, he didn't blow up on me. So these powerful emotional bonds, this is so wild. Powerful emotional bonds develop that are extremely resistant to change. Trauma bonding involves cycles of abuse. Following an abusive incident or a series of incidents, perpetrators will often offer a kind gesture to try and recover the situation. And a period of relative peace can follow before tensions start to rebuild and the abuse inevitably starts again. So abuse, that can be that can mean a lot of things. It can be a triggering word. And with trauma bonding, we often talk about emotional abuse, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, um, financial abuse. So there are a lot of different types of abuse. So the spiritual abuse is one that I work with in my realm quite a bit, where if somebody feels uncomfortable, then they will, if they feel really uncomfortable, sometimes they will just say that God told them to tell their spouse that they're doing something wrong. And that can be really, that can, oh, that can be highly manipulative. It can. I have to tell you, I was, there's a podcast called Hidden True Crime talking about the Chad and Lori Daybell case, which I'm just fascinated by. And they were sharing at one point that, that Chad Daybell's wife, Lori, who unfortunately, rest in peace, she died along this process. And you can go check out the material on that case. It's, it's so sad. But they were sharing that there was a time where she, Lori, really enjoyed playing a game on her phone. And rather than Chad having the four pillars of a connected conversation and say, hey, I'm noticing you're playing the game and tell me more about that. And are you, are you feeling off or depressed or what do you like about the game? On this podcast, they talked about that he said that her grandmother had visited him and told him to tell her to not play the game. 
And I look at things like that as spiritual abuse of that abuse of power. And back to this article, Brockstown Women's Project, survivors will try their best not to anger their partner and to do everything expected of them. They'll remember how loving their partner can and was in the early days of their relationship or hoping for the return of that behavior. And they think they just need to work out what they are doing wrong to bring back the loving part of their relationship. And it won't occur to them that the loving gestures were always manipulative and never genuine, their partner being incapable of real love. Those are strong words, but I think they're very well said. And I could do so many episodes or examples on that part where do everything expected of them, which that alone, that phrase expected of them, that's not a real relationship. You are a human being showing up into a relationship with your own unique gifts, talents, and abilities, just as your spouse is. So the unhealthy relationship is the, what, what do I need to do for them? Not what can I do? What can he do? And as we do these things together, we edify each other. You know, a one plus one is three type of energy. And then this part is uh, hoping to return to that behavior. They think they need to work out what they're doing wrong to bring back that loving part of the relationship. And that part, I will see people when then the relationship, let's say it breaks apart or they're heading toward divorce, that the trauma-bonded spouse will so often say, if I would have done more of this, even if they say, okay, I see where things are now, if I would have treated his, his, my stepdaughter nicer then things probably would have worked out better. And, and man, I just say, boy, bless your heart for trying to find a way that you could have changed this dynamic. But had you then done everything, quote, you were expected with this stepdaughter, then there would have been something else and that would have been something else. So it's this never ending, just rabbit hole of things that you would not have been doing wrong because the whole point is the, the gaslighter, the narcissist, the manipulator is not willing to take ownership of their own things. So rather than just say, oh my gosh, you're right. I'm not being very kind. I'm not being fair. I'm not taking accountability. They're able to say, well, if you would have done this, the whole thing would have been different. And you'll run into a consistent pattern of that. This article, what I love about it, it just has these quotes throughout that are just so spot on. This says, trauma bonding feels like you've broken me into pieces, but you're the only one who can fix me. That one's deep. This is the person that you can then come up with uh, examples in your head of where you turn to them for, for love or for connection. So then they're the ones that have broken you into pieces and then you want to go to them for, uh, for healing. So you do whatever you can to try to get that relationship back to a place so that you feel safe or that they will hear you. Trauma bonding has similarities with Stockholm syndrome where people have held captive develop feelings of trust and affection toward their captors. Both trauma bonding and Stockholm syndrome are survival strategies that develop to help survive an emotionally or physically dangerous situation. And women will hold on to toxic and abusive relationships and become more vulnerable to trauma bonding for a lot of reasons. And they go into a couple of those that I think are spot on and go a little bit toward the way the email that I started with today. Survivors who were raised in abusive households are more vulnerable to trauma bonding. And again, let's look at abuse. That could be Emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, financial abuse, any of those. An abusive relationship, okay, uh, that an abusive relationship may seem more normal or acceptable to them. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important for parents to model healthy relationships to their children, which we're going to touch on that down the road. When people do finally feel like uh, this is not good for me, they will often say, I need to stay in the relationship for the kids. But we'll get to some data down the road that shows that if you are modeling an unhealthy relationship, then that relationship is more likely to then move into the, the next generation, your kids. If your kids don't see 
you being able to have a voice or to do things that you love or to feel confident, then I believe that isn't what is best as a modeling form for the kids because then they grow up saying, I thought that was normal. I thought that was the way that relationships just worked. Women raised with abuse will also be likely to have lower self-esteem with less expectations of being treated respectfully. Being in the abusive relationship will further damage self-esteem, sometimes to the point that the woman will believe she deserves the abuse she's being subjected to. The abuse becomes her norm. Despite it making her feel deeply unhappy, she may stop aspiring to anything better if she doesn't feel worthy of love. And the longer the survivor remains with the narcissistic abuser, the more difficult it is to break the trauma bond. There is so much in that paragraph. It's and, and I hate continuing to say, we'll get to all these things down the road, but we could break that thing down in a, a five-part series. Trauma, fear, and abandonment actually increase feelings of attachment. And this is this one is this is where people say, why? Why can't I leave even when I know what's going on? It's because of these all of these different factors that we're talking about today in the trauma bond. The nice person, this wanting this approval, wanting to go to the very person that's hurt me to then try to make sense of everything. And so the more that one does this, then it will increase those feelings of attachment because you are so desperate to find those moments of connection, not knowing that that's not the norm or the real healthy uh, way to be in a relationship in general. So again, trauma, fear, and abandonment actually increase feelings of attachment. The more you have been hurt by him, the more intensely attached you will be. Trauma bonds are hard to break, but even harder to live with. Women in trauma bonds will tend to blame themselves for their partner's abusive behavior. She will agree with him. When he tells her that she shouldn't cope with, that she couldn't cope without him, that she's not really good enough, that she's made him angry, and that he wouldn't need to punish her if she tried harder. She'll also make excuses for his abuse. He had a difficult childhood. His mother didn't love him, so it's understandable why he gets angry. And she'll think that if she can stop being stupid or try harder or show more affection or intimacy or never doubt him, then things will be fine. But again, that's because anything that she is doing that he then takes as criticism, which ends up being most everything then he will do anything to defend that fragile ego. And that is then pointing the blame outward. And who is the number one target? It is the spouse. And if the spouse isn't around, it can be the children, or it's going to be the, the idiots at church, or the stupid neighbor, or that guy on the road, or whatever it is, never him. If she does manage to break free from the trauma bond, the abuser will commonly revert to the courtship phase to win her back, and she will be very vulnerable to his efforts. And think about now why, as we lay it out this way, because that's what she wanted. She wants that guy who's nice, and it was nice at the beginning, and, and who she wants. She's had these dreams. I want to be able to grow old with him on the beach. I want this to be the way that our life is. Oh my gosh, now he's being nice. I think he gets it. And I hear that in my office so often, and my job is to meet the client where they're at. I call them rule outs. So it's okay. No, I, I, I hear you. I will often say, I, I want to share that I, I worry that, that he just found a new button to push, and that this isn't who he is at his core. So then I call it a shelf life. So we'll see, is it a week? Is it two weeks? Where then he just says, okay, we're good, right? And goes back to whatever he was doing before. Or then he says, okay, you, you didn't tell me that you were unhappy again. I thought everything was great. It's been a week. And so that, what is he doing? Putting it on her. Putting it on her to, you need to tell me. This is on you now again. How crazy is that? How fascinating. So the more she reaches out to the abuser for love, recognition, and approval, the more the trauma bond is strengthened. This also means that she'll stay in the relationship when the abuse escalates, perpetuating the destructive cycle. Because he's the one abusing her and making her feel terrible, she will often see him as the only person able to validate her and make her feel okay again. Trauma bond. This next quote, although the survivor might disclose the abuse, the trauma bond means she also may seek to receive comfort from the very person who abused her. 
And it's really difficult to watch that in a couple's therapist setting to see someone have that light bulb moment or that aha moment and then want, why want something different? But then he, okay, he's going to be a little bit nicer. No, 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 it's okay. I think it's okay. Or they feel so scared. It's so scary because of what we talked about in one of those previous episodes of if all of a sudden she's like, no, I'm going to have a voice. I'm not going to just give in. Then it, it oftentimes, then that will amp up the the tension in the relationship. And so it can cause the the kind person to go back and say, no, you know what? I, I know I'm better equipped now. I think things are going to be different. And sometimes that can take, honestly, years. It really can take years for a, per, a person to then wake up to this narcissism and then know what to do with that. And I, I want to say, and I should do this more throughout the episodes I do, that if you are the partner, because I've also had some really cool emails from let's say, the men in, in these relationships that are saying, okay, no, I listened. And yeah, I hear you. I, I don't want to call it narcissism. You know, there's such labels with narcissism, but they say, okay, maybe it's some pride, maybe it's my ego, but but it's still difficult. Or fine, I might have some of these tendencies, but now what do I do with them? And so I, I love that. I really do. But that doesn't mean that then the spouse who has been feeling unheard or unloved then just says, no, no, now's the time to, to do the work, to find a maybe a good individual therapist to help you raise your emotional baseline or find a good couples therapist who knows the concepts of something like emotionally focused therapy, what, what, uh, what I love, who can then help you give you a framework of how to communicate. I'm going to run through these real quick and then we're done. Escaping from a trauma bond is notoriously difficult. Professional help is often needed. The following steps can help liberate the survivor from this destructive relationship. If possible, this can be really difficult, but they say physically separate from the abuser. It's essential. And although this can be difficult, it's invariably easier than emotional separation. And this is just the concept of where if, if over the years, that person, even though in this trauma bond, even though there are times and you desperately want to love them or you try to love them or you worry about what's wrong with you, but if they are the two of you together, if your cortisol levels are flowing high so that you are in your fight or flight response constantly, then they, you, you're triggered. You're triggered even just by being in the same room. Then uh, physical separation can often be one of the best things. But then, boy, still, that's where I feel like you really do need professional help. And that sounds like I'm saying, boy, are you crazy? I'm not. But I'm saying then that physical separation can get you out of that fight or flight. But then, unfortunately, now is where the logical brain will try to kick back in. But your pathological kindness will cause you to first go to the, oh my gosh, what did I just do? He must be feeling so hurt. And oh, this is hard to say this next part at times, but bless your heart for thinking that you do understand how he feels. But that's actually the problem that has gotten you in the situation that you're in, is that you have been so worried about how he feels, what he must be going through, that that is why you react the way you often do to the gaslighting or the emotional or, or spiritual or financial abuse. So this is a time for you to, again, raise your emotional baseline and show up as confident as you can be to be able to still express yourself because that's the, the relationship that you need and you deserve. The second thing they suggest is if you can cut off lines of communication as far as possible, and they say this can be made almost impossible if you share children, have a restricting communication to just email, for instance, or through a third party for childcare-related matters might be possible. And here's another one. We'll talk about this down the road. I know that that can be really difficult, but a lot of times people, it's okay to set a boundary of I'm going to communicate through text or email because the phone calls can, hearing the voice can immediately then cause that fight or flight response. And then you're prey to the gaslighting or the manipulation. And, and at the end of that phone call, it's, well, I wanted to say all these things, but I didn't. And I just ended up saying, okay, no, you're right, which is not where we want to go. The third one, and I really like this, the way they put this, acknowledge you have a choice and can choose to leave the relationship. Because I, I say so often, acceptance does not mean apathy. 
If you accept the fact that you can leave, it doesn't mean an all or nothing thought of, okay, but accepting the fact you can leave, then that allows you, and they put this really well, when choice is acknowledged, you can gain control and drive your destiny with less vulnerability to further abuse. So I always say that when you accept the fact that you could leave, then you're not continually looking for, should I leave? Should I not leave? Wait, what if he just said that nice things, so I probably shouldn't, right? Or asking the people around you and dealing with the psychology of the peanut gallery because they don't really know what you're going through. So just accept the fact that, no, if I need to, I can. And that way, then you are able to be more present with your self-care and in trying to figure out or communicate the best way to interact with, uh, with your, the person with the narcissistic traits. Self-reflection will enable you to understand how your character traits and vulnerabilities played a part in this codependent bond. Being abused is never your fault. I'm grateful that they said that. However, there may be aspects of your personality that made you more susceptible to this type of abuse. And that's where we talk about that kindness or that empathy or giving someone the benefit of the doubt. The quote that I almost misread that I talked about, I think, in our last episode that I really think about often is that it's in a uh, podcast I did a long time ago on the virtual couch talking about narcissists or sociopaths, psychopaths, oh my, all together. But the quote says, narcissists and sociopaths are extremely good at sniffing out trusting vulnerable people who tend to see the good in others. So thus, they can be very difficult for, quote, nice people to spot until the offender has wreaked tremendous and undeniable havoc. Relatedly, because people tend to view others as subscribing to a generally accepted moral code, such as that lying and harming others is wrong, even an otherwise savvy person can work hard to find the good reason why somebody's acting off rather than identifying problem personalities and behaviors for what they are. And feelings of anger and distrust or fear about what we, quote, know about a loved one will cause a lot of distress otherwise known is cognitive dissonance. So as a result, most of us wind up resolving the cognitive dissonance by reinterpreting facts that feel at odds with what we need and what we want to believe about somebody. So that I think that just becomes such an important part of the learning about your own character traits or what got you into this relationship. So that's that self-reflection. What worked out, okay, a few more of these that they list. Uh, work out what hooked you into this abusive relationship. Was it a fantasy or illusion or a perfect future? Was it that your partner convinced you that they he'd meet some deep felt need? Were you hoping he would make up for something you felt you were lacking? And learn about the character traits of narcissistic abusers, as this will help you understand what happened to you so you're less susceptible to future abusive relationships. Again, we'll cover that one down the road. Your picker's not broken because you're starting to wake up to what's going on. So you will be in a much better place. And, and again, we'll cover a lot of that down the road. Develop a support network of professionals, friends, and trusted family who will actively, positively, and compassionately support you to recover from the trauma bond. Domestic abuse is an isolating experience, but prioritizing social connections is vital for recovery. The narcissistic abuse or relationships often, there's a phrase called sequestering, just like when you sequester a jury and they have no interactions with anyone else. The, the person will also be sequestered. You know, you better not talk about this with your sister or hope you're not airing our dirty laundry to anyone, but you need to, that is, that is sequestering. That is part of the, it sounds harsh, but the emotional abuse, because you're human. You, you, can, com, you can communicate with who you need to communicate with. And that's part of being an adult. And so if uh, you are being, I, I then again say, you can have love or control in a relationship and not both in an adult relationship. But that's maybe a good time. I think I was going to mention this at the beginning. I didn't, but do please reach out to me through the TonyOverbay.com, the contact section. And uh, we've figured out a, a really nice way to open up the support group that I have for women who are maybe in these relationships, trying to navigate through these relationships, or are looking for support after post-relationships with narcissistic individuals. Make decisions that support your self-care. Be self-compassionate, both physically and emotionally. Don't berate yourself for, quote, mistakes. See recovery work as part of progress and as part of your journey. 
Live in the present. Notice how you're feeling now. If you're still in the relationship, notice how trapped you feel. Notice how scared and unloved you feel. Notice how you've compromised your self-worth in the relationship. Stop hoping for things to be better in the future, but notice how you're feeling now. Accept that sadness and uh, realize that you it's okay to grieve the end of an intensive and abusive relationship. Don't expect to feel better right away or too soon, but have confidence that better times will come. And I think, honestly, that's where uh, something like a support group or working with a professional really helps. Write a list of what you'd refuse to tolerate in a relationship. For example, I will not be intimate with someone who calls me names, or I refuse to be questioned every time I go out, or I will wear what I like, or I will not have conversations with someone when I feel desperate or obsessive. And then start planning your future free from your abusive partner. Make life-affirming positive choices for your future. I think we'll wrap it up right there. And I really just appreciate the support, again, of the podcast. Reach out if you are interested in joining that support group. And please continue to send me your questions. And I just, again, I will stop right here because I could not be more grateful or just feel blessed for the people who are sending in emails just saying that uh, they finally feel heard or understood because I I really, I do, I hear you, I I see you, and you are going to get through this. Whatever stage of this, just start start devouring this data. Again, there's no scarcity mindset from those of us that are in the helping profession that sometimes you need to hear a lot of things from a lot of people to really make sense of things. And so I hope that this is just one of those voices. So have an amazing day, week, and then then I was about to say, I'll see you next time on the virtual couch. But you can go look at the virtual couch as well, but I'll talk to you next week. Okay, bye.